I want to share my heart with you this morning out of Romans chapter 6. I'd like you to go back there with me to those verses. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we that died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, for those of you that are really paying attention, you will notice that my first point today is exactly the same as the last point from last week. And I am not getting senile, I don't think. I did that on purpose. We're looking at verses 5 through 11 this morning, but I wanted to remind us that our identification with Jesus Christ and his death and burial and resurrection is not an experience that we are going to have in our lives today. It is an accomplished fact that has already been completed in our salvation history. How many of you in your groups tried to answer the question, how many things happen the, the moment that, you, that you're converted, when you first come to Jesus Christ? How many numbers did you come up with, some of you? I know our group came up with probably, I don't know, 8 or 10 or 12 or something. Somebody had a long list. How many came up with more than 20? I remember being in a Bible study one time a number of years ago. Well, it goes way back to my college days. And, and I was in this Bible study with this professor from Dallas Theological Seminary, and he had made a list of 35 different things that happen when we are born again in that instance. All the things that God does when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. And it's an amazing list of all the things that happen. And the thing about that is, we don't always know, in fact, very few people have any comprehension of what God is actually doing in them when they first come to Jesus Christ. People come to Christ, they're hurting, they, they need a Savior, they, they, they are feeling convicted of sin, their lives are broken, they recognize that they need Jesus, and they come to Him and they have that wonderful sense of cleansing, and that new relationship with God, and they feel so fresh and alive in Christ, and, and that's all the, the wonderful sensation that comes with being saved. But, there are many, many things that God does in that blink of a spiritual eye that, that happen to us all of a sudden because we have come to Christ. Things like being justified, things like being sealed with the earnest of our salvation, the down payment, the deposit of the Holy Spirit in our life, by being born again, like 
dying with Jesus Christ on the cross, like being buried with him by baptism into death, by being raised with him to walk in newness of life. All of these things put into the body of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, given spiritual giftedness to have a place in the body. All of those things happen in that twinkling of an eye. And yet it takes a while as we begin to walk with Jesus to understand what God has done for us. And one of the things that is going on in this passage is Paul says, one of the things that happened to you past tense is that you died in Jesus Christ. You were buried with Him into His death. You were raised with Him that you might be enabled to walk a new life. The potential energy is there. The possibility exists for you to have a new life in Jesus Christ because of what has been accomplished. <coughs> and we need to, to come to terms with what God has done and believe it. Because it forms the foundation for everywhere we're going from here. Friends, what you believe is terribly important. The Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And you may not realize it, but your belief system drives your choices. What you believe to be true <coughs> about life is what causes you to make the choices that you make. No matter what it is. And you may not be conscious of that connection. Some people believe that you know that bumper sticker that says, the one who dies with the most toys wins. You know, and, and we laugh and chuckle at that and say, but people live their lives because they believe that. And down in the core of their being, they honestly think, if I just had more stuff, I would be happier. I would be more fulfilled. I would have more fun. And so that drives them to achievement and to possessions and to acquisitions and to a materialistic lifestyle that sacrifices <coughs> family and relationships and friendships and all kinds of things like that that go by the by because in their mind they think life is all about things. And you don't necessarily make those conscious choices, but what you believe drives the daily choices that you actually make to work that extra overtime and, and not go home, to, to, to spend you know, time doing something else you know, instead of spending time with your kids or whatever it is. Those little choices that we make. And Paul wants us to understand in this message, in this passage, that what we believe about what God did for us when we came to Christ will affect the way we live. It will make a difference in how we face temptation. It will make a difference in how we choose. It will change our behavior. And so it's vitally important that we believe what God says about the truth of our life in Jesus Christ. And I want us to underscore the fact, and it's the reason I started out where we left off last time, 
I want to underscore the fact <coughs> that we died in Christ, were buried with Him, and were raised with Him in a spiritual sense of reality the moment we came to faith in Jesus Christ. And it's an accomplished fact. It's not something you can trust God to do for you in the future. It has already been done. Now one of the reasons we have a hard time believing that is we don't necessarily see all the changes we would expect to see. You know, uh, I, I talked last week about that metamorphic butterfly, and, and that's a biblical word, by the way. The, the, the passage where Paul talks about being changed day by day into the likeness of Jesus Christ, that word changed is metamorphosis, that we are being transformed into something new and different, and yet not new and different. The, the, the butterfly has the same DNA as the caterpillar that crawled into that cocoon prepared. But it comes out vastly different. The caterpillar is crawling along a tree branch very slowly. The butterfly is swooping and dashing and flitting and flying. And they look different and they have different coloring and it's like, wow. But then if you look really close, you can see, well, they do have similarities. And if you were to check their DNA, you would find that they're the same species that they always were. And when we come to Christ and we are placed in Him, what dies in Christ is that old Adamic nature, the nature of Adam to be self-centered and self-willed and self-determined and, and autocratic and living as if we were the center of the universe. That dies, that sin nature. We die to sin. But we don't become a, a whole different breed. We don't go from being human to being something else. In fact, I mentioned last week the false notion that some people have is that, that we are supposed to, in Christ, become like God. And that's not what God offers, that's what Satan tempted Adam and Eve with. We don't become like Jesus, the Son of God, we become like Jesus, the glorified man, raised from the dead, triumphant over sin in his humanity. God redeems us and restores us. And in that process, he has given us a personality there are aspects of your personality that probably need tweaked in Jesus. <laughs> but your basic personality, if you're kind of a, 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 a somber... It, it was fun last night watching Chuck Beckler speak. That's the first time I've ever heard him actually speak. Uh, other than a prayer meeting or whatever. You know what? And I want to tell you something. I am not Chuck Beckler. <laughs> Those of you that were there last night, you know what I'm talking... You have no trouble imagining. I am not Chuck Beckler. But you know what? He had great things to say. He said them powerfully. He said them in the Chuck Beckler way. And it was really cool. And I, and I enjoyed listening to him. I could never preach like that. I'm not that person. But I appreciate that person. God is using him in the Chuck Beckler form. And God uses me in the Paul Martin form. 
It took me a number of years to stop trying to be Billy Graham. I thought if I was going to be a great preacher, I had to be Billy Graham. I bought a Bible that was very uh, flexible so that I could hold it like Billy Graham. The Bible says... And I tried to develop that North Carolina accent that I could preach. But I'm not Billy Graham. You're you. God doesn't want to change who you are in terms of your, your, your giftedness and your attributes and your personality. He, he wants to destroy that sin nature in you, that old life in Adam, and take the you that he skillfully wove together in your mother's womb, and he wants to make you look like Jesus in your form, in your personality. That's why we don't come to Christ and wake up the next morning and find that our hair color is different, or that we still don't have any, or whatever it is. Because those are not the things that change. What changes is the old self-centered, sin nature, carnal, bent, dies in Jesus Christ. And I am raised to walk in a new life. Freeing us from the mastery of death and the bondage of sin. Now I want us to look at verse 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Now, here's where I want to park for the bulk of the message this morning, because this is a watershed verse. This is a crucial verse. Every deeper life, higher life, victorious life, sanctified life, Pentecostal emphasis, every holiness group in the world has their similarities and their differences right here in verse 6. What is it that God actually did to that old nature of Adam in me? What happened to it? Some groups, and, and uh, we used to have interesting discussions around these lines when, when I was in college um, studying this stuff, kind of in an academic way, we had people that came from some of the holiness backgrounds that says God eradicated the sin nature. That when it says that we were crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed or done away with. See, different translations have different in, uh, translations here. Some say destroyed, some say done away with, some say rendered powerless. <clears throat> what happened to the sin nature? What happened to that body of sin, that carnal, fleshly part of me? What happened to it? It did die with Christ, but what does that mean? Does that mean it, it was buried and disappeared from the face of the planet? No, oh, you're right ahead of me there, Todd. <laughs> you're, right, you're right with me. Todd's got it. Absolutely not. But there are people who believe that the sin nature is eradicated when you are filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, the sin nature is eradicated. And people in those groups would give testimonies like this. I was saved and sanctified, and I was filled with the Holy Spirit five years ago, and I have not sinned one time since. Praise God. Right. <laughs> That's what I say. It's like, who are you kidding? What are you thinking? 
how do you define sin? What, what is it that you were doing the other afternoon, you know, the other morning? What were you doing? Oh, I made a mistake. But you didn't sin. No, I, I haven't sinned. I, I can't sin. My sin nature was destroyed. Not like that it wasn't. That's deception. You know, the problem with spiritual deception is you're deceived. When you're blind, you know what your problem is? You can't see. And people, they get into these theological kind of quagmires and they don't realize what they're saying and talking about. All you have to do is look in the mirror with a, with a, a, a little smattering of honesty and integrity and say, I may, this body of sin may have died, but man, it's still talking to me. It's still squawking and tempting and pushing. And So what does it mean? We can't get a lot of help if we go to the contextual study of this word in the New Testament because it actually is interpreted in different passages as destroyed, made ineffective, rendered powerless. So unfortunately, we can't get a lot of help by going to those other places where this particular word is used and say, okay, what does it mean in all these different passages? Because while the, the root concept is the same, the actual application of the word changes contextually. But the best way to understand this in Romans 6 is that the, the body of sin, the carnal fleshly part of me that is so attracted, so drawn, so driven towards self-will and, and in rebellion to God, that body of sin was rendered powerless. Now, I, I mentioned this morning in the first service about declawing kitties. And I found out, I guess, I'm not a kitty guy, so I found out that you can't do that anymore, you're not supposed to, or it's the animal rights people freak out. And so I, I'm not trying to offend anybody here, okay, if, if, if you want your cat to have claws, that's okay with me. I'm not, I'm, I, let's just, okay, take that part of it off the table for a moment. But I want to talk about how to solve a problem with a cat that scratches everything in sight, picks the furniture, pulls the pillows, you know, tears up your slacks and hose and everything else, and... You know, what do you do with a cat that's all, and, and if you don't need them to be a good mouser, you know, the solution used to be to declaw them. Have you ever seen a cat behave that was declawed? Do they still do this? You know, do they still act like they can tear things up? They do. But they can't, because their claws are gone. The old nature in Adam was rendered powerless in that sense. That in Jesus Christ, it, it, it is possible that we die to sin in a way that the claws of the sin nature are taken out. The problem is, it still bats them around and tries to make us think that it's still got claws. And let me take the analogy a little bit further. If you have a child 
that was afraid of a cat because the cat scratched, you know, the day you come back from the vet with the decloying having occurred, do you suppose the child is going to understand that the cat can't hurt him anymore? Or are they still going to have the same kind of inward fears and still get frightened when those paws come at them as they did before? It's going to take a while for the child to understand what you know immediately intellectually. Cat's claws are gone, cat can't scratch me. But a child doesn't get that. All they know is their experience. And their experience is, when that cat reached, I got scratched. I'm not getting in its way. But after a while, they begin to, to understand, oh, this thing can't hurt me anymore. I'm not going to get scratched. That's what declawing means. It can bat and play and carry on and land in my lap and crawl around my shoulder and whatever, but I'm not going to get scratched anymore because the claws are gone. In that sense, the sin nature has been rendered powerless in our life. It's still there. It still squawks. It still pushes us. It still wants to tempt us. It still, out of habit, responds the way it's always responded. But Paul is telling us a very important truth. It cannot control us. It cannot grab hold of us. It cannot bring us down. It doesn't have any power to do that any longer. In the, in the way that he explains it, he says, "Our old, We were crucified with him that our body of sin might be rendered powerless. That's the, the other side of the analogy. Paul said we died in Jesus Christ. That old man died. What does it mean to die? It means you, you stop breathing, you stop feeling, you stop sensing. What sense would it make for you to go to a funeral home and try to have your last argument with the deceased? Could you get a rise out of them? What if, what if you just owed him one last punch and you just had to get it in? You know? Am I grossing you out? I can, I can hear this. <laughs> I, I can get some of the reaction. It's like, oh. What are they going to do? You can kick, prod, poke, yell, scream, curse. Dead people don't respond. They're dead. Nothing in them responds to the stimulus. Paul says, we died. In Jesus Christ, we died, and it's possible for us now not to have to respond to the stimulus. It's possible that even though that cat's still in there pawing at us, 
we're not going to get scratched up and hurt because we have died in Jesus Christ and the cat has been declawed. And it doesn't have control anymore. Now, the thing that we have to deal with is this dying to self and the rendering powerless of sin does not mean that we can't sin. We can. We can sin greatly. We have that potential. We can follow the flesh. We can go the old way. We can act out of habit and look very much like what we used to look like if we don't allow Jesus to do his work. How many of you dealt with the question, what kind of sins in the New Testament do Christians commit that, that are addressed as Christians? Did you make the list? Whoa, it's incredible. I cannot imagine going to communion in Corinth. Here these rich people are coming in with their fancy bottles of, you know, wine and whatever else they brought, and their big sumptuous meals, and uh, they're not sharing with the people that couldn't afford it. That's like unthinkable. Christians, not only are they not sharing with them, they're getting stinking drunk. They're drinking at all at communion and their love feast, and they're getting drunk, and they're eating all the food they brought, and they're not sharing it with anybody else, and they're Christians. Paul calls them Christians. It's amazing what Christians can do when they listen to the flesh. If that upsets some of your theology, you need to read your Bible really closely again. Because Christians can sin. And it doesn't remove us from temptation. Because the cat's still pawing at us. It doesn't take us out of the presence of temptation. We're still going to face that. And it's still going to reach out to appeal to a dead man if you understand what Paul is telling us. But what it does do is this death in Christ that the body of sin might be rendered powerless makes it possible for us not to sin. And friends, there is the huge difference between us who know Jesus Christ and non-believers. Okay? Listen very carefully. Non-believers cannot not sin. Unbelievers are in bondage to sin. They cannot not sin. They're going to sin. They are lost. That's why they're unbelievers. They're lost and they cannot not sin. Now, there are certain limitations to that statement because God has given us the rule of law and the fear of punishment to keep us from turning into the animals we would be without the gospel. 
Because apart from Jesus Christ, human beings that have no law and no fear of punishment and no responsibility and no expectations go to the lowest common denominator. There are a lot of murderers in the United States, but only a few of them actually kill people. Because Jesus said, if you hate someone in your heart, you are guilty of murder. Jesus was taking the crime of the outward behavior to the root of the problem. And you remember the stop sign illustration between transgressions and sin? Where there was no law, there were no transgressions. You know, but we can still come to the stop sign and fully obey the law and still be sinning on the inside. Because we don't want to stop. We want to go. And we hate that thing impeding our progress. And if it weren't for the guy with the blue lights parked down the street, we would roll through that sucker and just keep on going. We're sinning in our heart, even though we're not transgressing. And the unbeliever, through the rule of law and the, and the um, pressure of the culture and the expectations of society, can come up with a modicum of some kind of outward okayness. But inside, they cannot not sin. In some way, in some area, in some path of their life, they are struggling with a battle they can't win because they're in bondage. And what Paul is telling us here is that it is possible for us in Jesus Christ to not sin on the outside or the inside. And believers are the only people on the planet that can do that. It is not possible outside of Jesus Christ. Only Christ can so transform your heart that you're not only righteous on the outside, but you're holy on the inside. Your heart has been transformed. I mentioned the story in the first service, and those of you that have been here a while, you, you know this well because I've spoken about it over the years. But when I had started a church in Franklin, Tennessee, after about three years, that church split. It was a growing church. It was a, it was a progressing church. It was a soul-winning church. It was an exciting church to be a part of. And three years into it, because of the self-willed determination of two men who helped to start it to continue to control it, the church just blew apart. And within a relatively short period of time, the church was damaged, the membership dropped to less than half, the income was severely cut, more than half. And the church was in the middle of a construction building project. And, and I, in retrospect, I, I believe I was wrong in doing this, but at the time it seemed like the right thing to do. I gave up my salary, and you didn't follow the rule. I gave up my salary in order to make sure the church could meet its mortgage payments. And so within a relatively few, few months, 
The church is half of its size. People have left. New believers have been disillusioned and hurt, and they're wounded and kind of out there bleeding, but they're not coming back to church. Going to church felt like going to a funeral. There was this power of death over the place. And the dreams and hopes were gone, and my salary was gone, and my friends were gone, and now I'm working a contractor job and eventually working nights uh, as a police officer and doing whatever else it took to try to make ends meet, and, and I'm wearing myself out, and I'm thinking, I've lost my goals, I've lost my congregation, I've lost my friends, I've lost my income, I've lost my future. I want to kill some people. I mean, I want to kill some people. I mean, there's two men that I would love to just strangle. I didn't want to shoot them. Because that you could do that from a distance and it would be over with. I wanted to get my hands around their necks. And I wanted to choke the life out of them. Does that scare you? First of all, if you don't recognize yourself, you don't know yourself. Secondly, if it doesn't scare you, you need to wake up. That's scary. It scared me. I'm not talking that, that I had momentary ideas of, boy, it would be nice to just kill these guys, like we say that off the cuff. I mean, I fantasized about it. I hated them. You know what kept me from killing them? That was part of it. The other part of it was I didn't want to go to jail. I didn't want to go to jail. I didn't want to be incarcerated. I mean, I'd lost a lot, but I didn't want to lose my freedom. So, you know. But I sensed in my spirit that if I could have found those guys in a place where no one would have ever known, and, and I would never have been discovered, <clears throat> and I would go to God and complain about that. I'd say, God, you know what, I'm not very happy with this because look at all these things these guys have done. And, you know, God would say to me, you need to forgive them. And I'd say, I don't want to forgive them. I want to kill them. Look at what they've done. And God, it's not my fault. I didn't cause this mess. You know, why don't you deal with these people? And, you know, the, the interesting thing about that is in retrospect, I didn't, I didn't really cause the mess. I think if I had been 10 or 15 years older and, and a little further down the road as a pastor, I would have been a little wiser about how I handled some things. But I was not the cause. In fact, the reason that I'm here today is that about 23 years ago, the man who was the vice president of North American Ministries at the time, Church Ministries, said to John Fogel, who was a DS in the Midwest, if you ever get a chance to give Paul Martin an opportunity to come back into the Alliance as a pastor, you need to do that because what happened in Franklin was not his doing. So outside of me, people acknowledged I did not cause that situation. And so I'm complaining to God about this. And it's like, you know, you're not doing your job. I mean, how do people get away with this stuff? And God wouldn't let me go. He kept coming back to me and saying, I'm not worried about them. I'm worried about you. I want to deal with you. 
You thought 10 years ago, at that time it was about 10 years ago, you thought 10 years ago when I got rid of your temper tantrums that you were cured. Just because you haven't had a temper tantrum in 10 years does not mean you're cured. You have a sin problem rooted in your heart of anger and rage, and I want to deal with that. But God, look at what these people did. I'm not talking about what these people did. I'm talking about your problem. Their problem is they destroyed a church. Your problem is you want to kill them. And I want to deal with your problem. God does not just want to root out sin on the outside. He wants to root it out on the inside. He wants to deal with our hearts in a way that sin has lost its grip, not only in our behavior, but in our spirit. He wants to set us free so that we can bless those who persecute us and do good to those who despitefully use us and pronounce a benediction upon those who want to destroy us and rest in the fact that vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, and they're a sinner like I'm a sinner, and I need to be kind and tender-hearted, forgiving them in Jesus Christ, just as God in Christ has forgiven me. Wow. So God and I had this, this battle going for a long time, and I'm getting ahead of myself here a little bit, but what God began to deal with me was, was what Paul dealt with in Romans chapter 7 when he's struggling with the law, and he says, the law says this, but he says, you know what really got Paul? Every one of us, God takes us down the path of our greatest weakness. You know what really got Paul coveting? Do you know why that got to him? He was one of those guys that could keep it together on the outside. And some of you are like that. You have, you have strong wills. I'm not in any way speaking derogatorily of my father-in-law right now. I want you to know that. I admire and respect the man dearly. But he's a military guy. And, uh, <laughs> Semper Fi, yeah, okay. He's a military guy, and he has incredible discipline. I think he weighs about what he weighed when he graduated from high school. He still exercises every day. He's almost 85, and he still exercises every day. And he takes care of himself, and he, you know, and, and one time I was talking to him about weight control or whatever like that, and he said, I just, I just leave the table. Duh. <laughs> Self-control is the name of his game. He's wired that way. That's who he is. Some people can go through all kinds of military training and never get that kind of control. There's fat officers. You know, but, but he got it because he's wired that way. So some of you are put together that way. And, and you can do the whole outside thing fine. Not going to lie, not going to steal. Uh, right down the list. But what got Paul was coveting. You know why? Because that's not something you do on the outside. That's not a behavior. That's an attitude. That's something on the inside. Paul said, that's where the law got me. When God said, thou shalt not covet, he said, I wanted all kinds of stuff that were beyond my reach. And I, and I, and I pined over it. I, I, I wanted it. I calculated my life to achieve it. That's where the pride of life comes in and, 
and, and all of those kinds of things. Paul said, that's what got to me, was the attitude. And he came to that place in Romans 7 when he had wrestled with that for some time, and he said, I know that in my flesh dwells nothing good. Friends, you may be here this morning, you may say, I agree with that. You know, you're right, I, I agree with you. But let me tell you what, till you've been down to the mat with your chief problem, you're not yet convinced of it in your heart. And what the old divines that wrote about the deeper life, they used to call this the path of the cross. Because God takes us down a trail that, that points out our attitudes. Because he wants to get right down to the core. And God wants to bring that out in the open to prove to us we are powerless to do anything about this. We have to consign that old man to death by faith and trust God to do it for us. And that's exactly where I came to with my anger. I told God I don't know how to forgive. He said, just ask me. I told God I didn't want to forgive. He said, ask me anyway. I told God I still wanted to kill him. He said, just trust me. And that argument went on for a long time until finally, by faith, as I said, God, I can't do this. I cannot do this. You're going to have to change me. If it happens, it's going to be you. And God taught me what it was in experience to apply that death to an attitude. That by faith he could do through me what I have no power to do. But that's what he was getting at. Do you know God, the, the church problem and the split and all of that, that was their problem. But my attitude was my problem. And God used that to deal with me. God will do that sometimes. He will use circumstances and situations in your life when you look and say, I didn't have anything to do with that. Why is this happening to me? And God says, I know you didn't have anything to do with that, but that's not what I'm after right now in your heart. I'm after the problem you're having with it. I want to deal with that. I want to get to that. Paul says that we have died in Jesus Christ and been raised to walk in, a new, in newness of life, that we might be truly free, that the body of sin might no longer have control, that the power of sin would be broken in our lives, that we are the only people on the planet that can actually not sin in behavior and in spirit. We can be like Jesus Christ in heart and in action. And that's the amazing thing. This freedom that Jesus Christ is talking about is true freedom. I saw an article in a men's magazine a few years ago and it just it was it was startling to me. And I want to tell you what this kind of teaching makes makes waves all over the church. Everybody says, "Oh yeah, that makes good sense to me." And it's a lie. Listen, listen to what this guy said. He was talking about dealing with temptation, and temptation that many men have is temptation of lust. And he said, "I've learned that I cannot even drive by Hooters on the same street." I've learned that I have to go around the blocks to avoid hooters because I can't even go by there. And, and that's how I deal with sin. He's not dealing with sin. 
He's still a lustful man. He hasn't solved anything. The man who's free in Christ, I think Jesus could go into Hooters and order a plate of hot wings and not be bothered by the women who have been hired to be used. That's why they're on the billboards. I'm not picking on a restaurant. I'm just pointing out that, that, that the whole agenda there is to use and abuse women to attract a clientele driven by lust to eat chicken wings. I just, I just had this image. <laughs> these fat old guys that have been eating chicken wings for years, sitting there thinking these women actually care about them. Good grief. What a fantasy land in more ways than one. But you're not free if you have to drive around the block, can't go by the restaurant. You're in bondage. You can't drive down a street. What kind of freedom is that? That's not free. You're tied up in knots. Jesus wants to set you free. He wants you to be free to love those people that have despitefully used you. Listen, when God was done with me, I loved those two men. I love them today. I can tell you that with all integrity. I love them. I feel sorry for one in particular. I've never seen him since. But the other one I did see about eight or nine years later, he had actually gone on to pastor a church. And they had done to him what he had done to me. And I stood with him and my heart broke for him because I did not want that to happen to him. No one should have to go through that. It grieved me. And we were able to stand arm in arm, he and his wife and me, and pray together and ask God to minister to them. I loved him. Because God had changed my heart. I was at a truck stop in the middle of the night on a trip, buying gas. And a prostitute approached me. And she was offering her services. And here's what the Holy Spirit said in the midst of that. He said, I love this woman. Jesus shed his blood for her. She's going to hell. Can you tell her about Jesus? Friends, there's only two kind of people in the world. And guys, there's only two kind of women in the world. Saved ones and lost ones. The saved ones are your sisters in Jesus Christ. The lost ones are going to spend eternity in hell apart from God. God wants to set you free in a way that you can love the lost as those who are dying without Christ and love the redeemed as your sisters in the Lord and get over this other stuff. Let me take you down another road. 
some, uh, this is going to upset people. It's going to be on the internet. See if we get an email, rise in emails here. Okay? And I know this is going to make some people angry. Deal with it. Then God will deal with your problem of anger. People that say, I have come to Jesus Christ and now I go to AA three times a week, five times a week, seven times a week. I'm, I, I don't drink anymore. But I have to go to AA four times a week in order not to drink. You're not free. You're in bondage to Alcoholics Anonymous. If you have to go to AA three or four times a week so you won't drink, you're in bondage. And they will tell you, I'm still an alcoholic, I just don't drink. I beg to differ. If you're in Jesus Christ, you are a new creation. He has liberated you from the power of sin. You are not an alcoholic. Stop saying that. He has freed you from that. Now, if you still have a drinking problem... You do not understand how to apply the work of the cross in your life. But don't tell me you have to go to Alcoholics Anonymous four times a week so that you don't drink because you're still an alcoholic who doesn't drink. You're in bondage. If you are free in Jesus Christ, you ought to be able to go to the bar, order a Coke, and talk about Jesus with your friends and not have a problem with the liquor. Now, I'm not talking to people who don't have a problem with liquor. I'm talking to people that are in bondage to it. Jesus will set you free. And when you're free, you can be in the presence and not have the problem. Now, I'm not recommending that if you're just figuring this stuff out, and this is the first you've heard of it, don't go to the bar this afternoon and check it out. Wait till you hear the next four or five sermons anyway. Because <clears throat> there's a lot I haven't told you yet. But you've got to understand the potential. Jesus Christ wants to liberate us. This is the problem with legalism. You know what legalism does? It sets you up to think about your failures and the law and your sin all the time. Talk to someone who's trying to stop smoking. Trying to stop smoking. Give them to talk to you about their experience. What do they think about? I can't have a cigarette today. I'm not going to have a. I'm not going to smoke today. I'm not going to smoke this hour. I'm going to see if I can get through the next five minutes without a cigarette. Gosh, I want a cigarette, but I'm not going to have that cigarette. And, and so goes the day. What are you thinking about when you when you're in that when you're in that circle of struggle. What are you thinking about? Smoking. What does the scripture say? You have died. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. Therefore, seek those things which are above. Set your mind on things above where Christ is, not on the things of this earth where you died and your life is hidden with Him and God. Now, how does thinking about smoking all day long translate into thinking about Jesus? It doesn't. And the problem with legalism is, all it gets you to do is focus on your failure and the law. And the scripture says that will never, ever release you. I'm just going to read you a passage from Colossians. Because so many people fall into this trap. And they just live there. 
If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, this is Colossians 2.20 if you're taking notes, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you still submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which refer to things destined to perish with the using in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. Now, are you with me? Here's the rules. Don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. Don't go near the bar. Don't go near the women. Don't get on the internet. Don't go near this stuff. It'll ruin your life. Don't touch it. Don't taste it. Don't handle it. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom. That, that, that's why the magazines sell. That Write these articles up in the men's books. That's why they sell books. It has an appearance of wisdom. Oh, okay, I know how to solve my problem. I just have to drive around the block. I can't go buy Hooters. I can't. Now I've got it solved. No, you don't. All you did was rule out a street. You don't have anything solved. They have an appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. But here's the kicker. This is the Bible, friends but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. They won't help you. They won't help you. It's not that they'll help you a little bit. It's not that they'll give you some, some hooks to hang on to your figures. They have zero value against fleshly indulgence. Because you know what? And one of our dear friends in this church who's had more struggle than anybody I know is the first person I ever heard this from. He says, like my mama always said, wherever I go, there I am. Think about it. Wherever you go, there you are. And the problem is here, not there. Jesus has died to free you in here. He has died to liberate you. And as children of the living God who have died with Christ, been buried with Him, and raised to walk in a newness of life, we are the only people on the planet who are free not to sin. We're the only ones that can make a choice. Everybody else is in bondage. But we can choose. We have the, the ability to say yes to the Holy Spirit and no to the carnal nature. We have that potential in Jesus Christ. No one else has that potential. We are free. This is part of redemption. We are being restored to the original man. Remember I told you that whole business of being like Jesus, who is God, is of the devil. We're never going to be like Jesus, the Son of God. We're going to be like Jesus, the glorified man. A human being redeemed fully and set free so that I can make a choice to serve God. I can make a choice to share Jesus with a prostitute. I can make a choice in the power of the Holy Spirit to say no. If I have a, a, an addictive tendency toward alcohol, to say no when I'm offered a drink. I have a choice in Jesus. Because I have been freed by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus walked on this earth in some pretty strange places. You know what the religious leaders said about him? Think about it. See, we, we, put, we put these stereotypical kinds of churchy interpretations on all of this, and we think of Jesus as this saint in this little box over here. He didn't live in the real world. What do you think the Jews meant when they said, this man eats with publicans and sinners? How could he be a prophet? What do you think they meant? They meant, he's down there at Vicky's place on Saturday night. You say, wait a minute, Paul. <laughs> wait, no, no. You, you're messing with us here. No, I'm serious. That was the complaint of the religious erudite Jews. He eats with publicans and sinners. Well, where do you find publicans and sinners? Where they gather. What was he doing there? Eating, drinking, and talking to them. And not sinning. Never, ever sinning in his heart, in his mind, or in his behavior. Never once. Never crossed the line. Never had a thought contrary to the holiness of God. Never had an attitude that was self-centered. Tempted? Oh yeah. He was tempted in every point as we are. Never gave in. Never capitulated. Always obedient. Because he was free. We need to get that, friends. We need to get it. And, and, I, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm saying this, I'm about done. I'm going to quit. I'm saying this and I realize there's, there are folks here this morning and, and I've said just what you were waiting to hear. And you're thinking, I'm glad he set that straight. I can go out and do as I please. And I want to tell you something. You don't get it. I'm telling you, you're free not to go out and do as you please. You're free to go out and do as God pleases. That's what I'm telling you. And if you're hearing, I can go do what I please, you're still living in that old nature. But you can go out of here and do what God pleases. And you can go anywhere with God and do what God pleases when you get it. That's the message. And the final point takes about 30 seconds, but it's the biggest one. Paul says, this is accomplished fact. Believe it. Verse 11, therefore reckon yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Count this as being true. Next week, I'll tell you how. But for the time being, you believe this freedom. Trust it. God has set you free. He will deliver you. He will make you free in practice, just as he already has in fact. And put your faith there. Father, I ask in Jesus' name this morning that you open our eyes of understanding, that you give us... That you give us uh, a spirit of wisdom and knowledge and understanding in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we really know what is the hope of our calling.
that we really understand what are the riches of the glory of the inheritance of Christ in the saints, that we really comprehend the surpassing power of God toward us who believe that was demonstrated when you raised him out of that grave and lifted him up and seated at your right hand, and we have been raised and seated with him. God, help us to understand that. Give us a spirit of wisdom and knowledge and understanding in this truth that we might first of all believe what you have done for us, that we might walk in it in the liberty wherewith Christ has set us free. Oh God, open our eyes. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.